Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you. There's a few people in here. Uh, happy Mother's Day. And uh, I affirm all of the sentiments that were prayed for and shared and expressed earlier today. Uh, whether this is a day of difficulty or a day of joy, uh, I pray that the nearness of our God uh, would, would comfort and would be with, with us all. Long before there was Nick Walenda, the guy who is the tightrope man over dangerous caverns, Long before there was Nick, there was Charles Blondin. He was the first to tightrope across Niagara Falls, and he did not disappoint. His warm-up act was meant to uh, encourage onlookers to gasp and to doubt his ability. His first trip over was full of purposeful slips and stumbles. Uh, he proceeded to go back and forth five more times. Each time, adding to the degree of difficulty. Uh, first, he went back without a balance pole. And then he took juggling pins and uh, juggled his way across. The third time, he carried a chair with him. Halfway through, he set the chair down and sat on the chair. Fourth time, he took a hot plate, which I'm not quite sure I understand what that is, but it's a hot plate, and he made himself an omelet as he was walking across. If you're looking for a Mother's Day connection, maybe the best I got is, uh, mothers, pray that your children do not grow up to be death-defying tightrope people. Uh, but the fifth time across was the most real. Uh, after asking the crowd if they thought he could make it back and forth in any way possible, the crowd said, yes, yes, yes. And he pulled out a wheelbarrow and he said, how many of you think I can get across with this wheelbarrow? And yes, 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 the crowd said. And then Charles asked for a volunteer. Who will jump in the wheelbarrow with me? No, well, not with him. So he can push it across. And no one volunteered. Surprisingly, no one volunteered. Finally, his manager which I'm guessing is just part of the job, uh, volunteered and jumped in, and they made it across Niagara Falls. Charles Blondin pushing his manager. Now, if you're Googling this at some point, there is debate as to whether or not the manager was in the wheelbarrow and he, or the manager just jumped on his back. Either way, I think the point remains. What did the crowds lack on that day? You see, they lacked true faith. Charles asked, uh, who believes that I can walk back and forth with this wheelbarrow? The, the crowd shouted and professed to believe that Charles could do the seemingly impossible. And yet when it came time, when it came time to give evidence to their profession, to get into the wheelbarrow or to get on his back, they balked which is a great indication of a lack of genuine faith. And this is exactly the point James desires to make this morning in our passage. And yet there's so much more on the line than merely the fame and the reputation and the safety that comes from a tight rope walk. 
No, the eternal destiny of our souls is at stake. It was at stake for the original recipients of James' letter. It's at stake for you and I this morning. And James desires to serve us in the same fashion that he served his original readers. And his desire is not to have genuine Christians doubting their faith. James is not trying to be abrasive and to discourage those who have a tender conscience. No, James is seeking to unsettle those who were deceived, who were content to maintain and hold on to a profession of faith, all the while having a life that was void of any evidence of it. And this morning, I can't help but be reminded of how this passage serves as a gracious gift of mercy to you and I. It, it serves as a gracious expression of God's mercy to those who are deceived about their, their salvation. And so this morning, we need the Spirit's help as we seek to thread the needle between challenging those that are deceived and encouraging those that are saved and all the while magnifying the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to that end, I need to pray. And so ask you to join with me as we pray this morning. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do not want to settle for dead faith. We certainly do not want to settle for demonic faith. We want genuine faith, a faith that believes you and a faith that follows you. A faith that receives your truth and a faith that reflects your love. And we know that this kind of faith only comes as a gift of grace to us. We can't manufacture it. And so by your spirit, would you grant us faith this morning? Give us that gift. Would you take our hearts and would you open our understanding to the faith that is inside of us? Do you draw people that are watching, perhaps for the first time, to faith in you? And we pray that our faith in you would birth in us extraordinary action for the good of the world and for the glory of your name. And so, Spirit, graciously attend this sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Use this far greater ways than I could ever script. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. James is going to be towards the back end of the New Testament. Chapter 2, 2 is going to be the large number, usually there at the top. And the smaller numbers, verses uh, 14 through 26, those serve as the verse numbers. And James is continuing his line of thinking and his logic. And he's continuing to make the case that we saw him uh, make last week. Last week we saw James make the case that those whose lives are marked by favoritism deny the very faith that they profess. And then we saw that that partiality is a departure from God's royal law. And so this morning we're going to see James continue to contend that faith that is void of works is not genuine faith. And this week as I was studying this, I just 
stopped literally at one point and just thought, I am so thankful for this word. Like where in the world will we hear this message other than from the word of God? This is such a gift to us. James saw that many who claimed to follow Jesus had lives that did not line up with their profession. And James was not content to ensure that the people that he was writing to had false assurance and false security. So he writes a whole letter urging them to embrace Jesus Christ and to lay aside their fake faith. This is such a gift to us. And it's so relevant to us. One commentator said this, and I can't help but think this is one of the more accurate descriptions of the church in our day. He says, quote, the theology so popular in many churches today is different than many throughout church history. The new theological wrinkle offers a quick and permanent assurance of salvation in response to an easy profession all the while allowing the convert to live in contempt to the rest of Jesus' teaching. Such softness thereby permits a professing Christian in a lifestyle indistinguishable from that of a lost person, but gives them confidence in eternal salvation. And James' voice and this passage is frighteningly relevant for us today. And so we come to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, to the uh, most misunderstood and the most controversial part of this letter. Doug Moo, in his commentary on James, says that this paragraph is the most theologically significant as well as the most theologically controversial in the whole letter of James. And the issue hinges on what appears to be a contradiction that we see within the Bible. If we were to flip to Romans chapter 3, particularly in verse 28, this is what we would read. For we maintain, Paul making an argument about what earns righteousness and right standing before the Lord, Paul says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James chapter 2, verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And therein lies the apparent contradiction. And we believe that the Bible is the breathed out word of God, that it contains no errors, that it's not contradicting itself at any point. So the question then is, what are we missing? missing? And every time we read the Bible, it's helpful for us to remember that context is king. Context always wins the day when it comes to reading the Bible. And so it's helpful for us to know that James is addressing a different issue and a different audience than Paul was addressing. You see, Paul is writing to show how is it that anyone is ever accepted before God. And Paul makes it clear how that's done. That's done mainly by faith without any works of our own. Well, that's not what James is writing about. James is writing about how to expose and diagnose hypocrisy among Christians. 
And he calls them to see how that hypocrisy and how their faith interacts and lives with works. J.I. Packer put it this way, Paul denounces the idea of salvation by dead works. And James rejects salvation by dead faith. Or, put another way, Paul denies works as a basis for justification, right standing before God. James insists that works is an evidence of justification, right standing before God. You see, James' use of the word justify, it's in terms of how genuine faith is proven. It's vindicated. It shows itself to be genuine. Paul's use of the word justify is how is it that a man is declared righteous before the Lord? So Paul is saying, how is someone justified? How are they declared righteous before the Lord? That's by faith, not by works. James is saying, how is it that one's faith is justified. It shows itself to be genuine. It's vindicated. It proves itself. And that is by works. And so Paul says that salvation is by grace alone. And James says that grace alone produces works. If, if, if we were to just flip through other passages that Paul has, has written, what we would find is that uh, Paul does not take issue with the reality that James is putting forth. Paul will make clear in multiple spots that faith works, right? Galatians, the whole letter of Galatians is about believing a false gospel and thinking there's any other way to stand before the Lord with right standing other than faith alone, not by our works. And yet at the end of the letter of Galatians, what does Paul say? Galatians 5 chapter 6. That it's a faith working itself through love. And so it's not merely a faith that isn't accompanied by any action or evidence. In Ephesians chapter 2, after outlining the great divide and, and the, the true nature of our standing before God in our sins. And then walking through the glorious truths of the gospel. But God, verse 4. What did he do? He made us alive and he seated us in the heavenlies. And so it's by faith that we are saved. Not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Then you get to Ephesians 2.10 right after that. And what does he say? For we are his workmanship created for good works. That faith Paul understood would make itself, would show itself, would prove itself to have works that flow from it. And so with this in mind, let's turn to the passage this morning. James will insist that faith and works are inseparable. One commentator said they're not enemies with swords drawn facing each other. Rather, they are allies standing back to back fighting off various false teachings. Where faith is present, works must follow. Works aren't added to faith in order to earn something from God. Works are a genuine expression of faith that has been given by God. And so three points this morning that will show faith without works is dead. And each one of the points will have the same warning. Conclusion. First, James is writing to ensure that the readers know that faith expresses itself through works. 
And he says, beware of a hollow profession. Beware of a hollow profession. We see this in verses 14 through 16. Listen again. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? James asked two rhetorical questions in order to draw us into this passage. And it's all based on what he says in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? That's what James is addressing. Someone making a profession of faith that's void, that's lacking a lifestyle of evidence. And so that's what he wants to address. There's claim to faith, but there's no support by a changed life. And he writes in such a way as to where he's anticipating the answer to the first question of what use is it? It's of no use. It's of no use to have a faith that you claim to have if you don't have a life that's been affected by the faith that you do have. The second question gets even greater. Can that faith save him? It's an emphatic no. James is wanting to make clear that it is possible to be deceived. It is possible to think and to make a profession of faith and all the while not have genuine faith. And a faith that does not evidence itself through the life that is lived on the other side of belief is a dangerous, James will say, it's a dead faith. It's not a good faith. And so this should arrest our attention this morning. Friends, the stakes could not be any higher. James says that a mere profession is not sufficient because a profession alone does not save. A faith that doesn't produce works. And when I say works, I'm not saying I'm trying to earn something from God. I'm saying actions that are done in obedience to God. James says that a faith that doesn't produce works is not a saving faith. And then he gives an illustration of this. He wants us to help see how this could be lived out. And he says there's a professing Christian who sees a need. And this professing Christian makes a profession to care and yet does nothing about it. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, well, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, right? That's the equivalent of us saying, hey, I will pray for you. Go and be well. Though a concern is communicated, what speaks louder is the lack of action. And so if you say that you have sympathy and then you do not act, then James is saying you don't have authentic sympathy. The claim is useless. I can stand here this morning and claim to be a songwriter. And you may be surprised to know that last summer I did write a song, a very good one. It's called The Gift. It's for another discussion. Okay, it wasn't good, but it was, it, nevertheless, it was called The Gift. If I claim to be a songwriter, but I have never written a song, then you should be concerned. 
You should be concerned about how I perceive myself. Because songwriters write songs. And so too Christians. Their lives bear fruit in keeping with their profession. And while I don't think James' main point is the illustration that he gives, I do think that there is a disturbing theme that James keeps bringing to the forefront as he speaks to uh, how then should we live in light of the faith that we have. And that theme is how we treat those that are needy, how we care for the vulnerable. Over and over, James uses this example. Most scholars think because it was, it was a prime issue during his day. I can't help but just be shaken at some level to the examples again and again about how Christians care for the needs and the vulnerable and the hurts of others. And, and, and this isn't about, well, what do you think about this social justice theory and what, you, what do you think about this one? No, this is, I believe James is just taking us back to an issue of love, which is what he did last week saying that if you claim and if you show favoritism in some way, you're denying this royal law of loving God with all that I am and loving my neighbor as myself. And again, it's not just in James. Jesus speaks to this. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, what you've done to those that were thirsty, you didn't do them just to those who were thirsty. You were doing those to me. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, again, just another iteration and reminder whoever whosoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of God abide in him and again I don't think this is the main point of the passage but it's definitely been a point in this passage that has haunted me this week it's haunted me because in my affluence I think I'm safe to say this both in the time in which we live where in which we live In my affluence, I am so easily dulled to the needs of others. And James would just remind us, beware of a hollow profession. One of the ways in which our faith most clearly evidences itself is in how we care for the vulnerable. How we care for the oppressed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to make this clear. This is not to be a point that is uh, trying to motivate us on the basis of guilt. If we have to do these things, if we're obligated to do these things in order to get something, in order to appease someone, then that's the wrong way of looking at this. No, we are motivated by the gospel. And we saw last week, the gospel is this message of how Christ endured all that he wasn't. And he stooped low to minister and to reach to us. So now we are free then to do the same. We're free then to not only think about ourselves, but to also think about others and to move towards them in seeing their needs met. And so what I'm talking about is just reminders of having the gospel so embed itself in our hearts where the overflow begins to be generous good works. Not so much duty, but delight. Where we enjoy giving to the needy. In the same way that we would enjoy giving to Christ himself.
So what's the conclusion? The conclusion of this first little section of beware of a hollow profession in verses 14 through 16 is in verse 17. Consider the staggering judgment that James pronounces. James steps out of the illustration to apply the judgment to the listener. And he says this kind of profession is outwardly useless and it's inwardly dead. James rejects the notion that you and I can have genuine faith without any works. The nature of genuine faith is to express itself in works. Again, J. Alec Motier, commentator, said, saving faith results in a distinctive life. When something as potent, as powerful as the new birth, where it takes, uh, as something as potent as the new birth, when it takes place, it cannot be hidden. To have the life of God in us and to remain unchanged is unthinkable. Consider that. When we give our lives to Christ, he gives us the spirit and the spirit lives through us. And this affects everything that you do. It affects everything that I do. The kind of people that we are becoming is in light of the faith that we have. It affects how we work. It affects how we relate to God's word. It affects how we handle our money that's on loan from him. It affects how we handle trials. I mean, this letter is written to show us what a changed life ought to look like. James chapter 1, verse 26, remember, real faith manifests itself in a changed life. He gives three evidences. You will have a controlled tongue, you will have a compassionate heart, and you will be unstained from this world. There's a change that emanates from a changed life, from a heart that is made alive. And let's be clear, James isn't saying that you're not going to have bad days. And he's not saying that you won't have bad weeks. And he's not saying that you won't have ongoing struggles. But he's saying the trajectory of your heart will always result in a changed life. And so I wonder this morning, do the works of your life point to a transforming work in your heart? Even this week, I just had a conversation with a friend who would profess one thing and just looking at the patterns of prolonged, unrepentant sin and just saying, James is writing to you, my friend. He's writing so that you would not deceive yourself that just because there was a point in time where you would say that you made a decision, your life has remained unchanged. That is not that that point in time of making a decision is not something you should take comfort in. This would be a great question for you to just ask people around you. Are you seeing degrees of transformation in my life? And don't just ask the people who are always going to tell you what you want to hear and who never confront you with truth. No, ask people who will be honest with you. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But fruitfulness is the mark of that kind of faith. And if it's lacking, then the application this morning is not try to run around and tack on and staple fruit onto a dead tree. No, it's to trace the lack of fruit back to the root and to see what's going on. 
false faith is dead and it's unable to save us. And James is writing to say, brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And don't allow those around you to continue in deception. If there are people that you know, or perhaps you are one who make a profession, a claim to follow Jesus, and yet there is very little interest in the person and the work of Jesus, or there's very little interest in the people of Jesus, and there's very little interest in walking in repentance and faith, and there's very little interest in forgiving others whenever they have been wronged, and there's very little interest in desiring to gather and to intake the word. There's very little interest in growing in Christ-likeness. Friends, even if you show up to gatherings in non-pandemic times, week in and week out, professing the same things, faith without a corresponding lifestyle is a false faith. And if this is you, friends, don't run in shame. Don't run in shame. Run to the one who is seeking you out to remove your shame and to remove your counterfeit faith. I praise God for meaningful church membership. But meaningful church membership is not a guarantee of a false profession of faith. This leads us to our second point. Point number two, beware of doctrinal deception. Beware of doctrinal deception. We see, this as, we see this in verses 18 and 19. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. It's interesting, James is writing and it, at verse 18, it's as if he anticipates an objector. And so he introduces this objector into the scenario. And the objector would stand up on the hills of James saying, if you see a need and you don't meet a need, then perhaps there's something off with your faith. And the objector stands up and says, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. You have works and I have faith. This objector is attempting to separate faith, faith and works, almost as if it's a spiritual gift. You have the gift of faith. I have the gift of works. Or the other way around. This objector thinks it's possible to have faith without works. And James insists that the two are inseparable. James says, okay, I will show you my faith by my works. You show me your faith. You can't. You can't show me your faith merely because you tell me you have faith. That's not faith. And that's the point. James is trying to encourage his original audience and us today by extension with just the reality that at some point, faith will make itself visible if it is genuine. It will make itself visible. At some point, we are all going to have to sit in the wheelbarrow. And if it can't be made visible, that is cause to believe that it's not genuine. 
Genuine faith cannot be discerned apart from action. A changed heart will always result in a changed life. And so the gospel reaches down and it grabs our hearts and it changes our hearts from the inside out. It brings us into a relationship with the living God and we can never be the same again. Saving faith always reveals itself in how we live and in how we love. And James shows this to be the case. And he shows it to be the case in in the most provocative of ways. He compares this objector's understanding of faith to faith of demons. Verse 19. The demons illustrate a fake faith. Because it's a faith that merely affirms doctrine. It's not a faith in which that doctrine has so changed their lives. James says, do you believe that God is one? It would be similar to us saying, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. James commends that profession. But then he shows that that profession alone is inadequate. What illustration Is there, could there be that a genuine Christian would want to distance themselves from more than having my faith compared and likened to the faith of a demon? Demons are among some of the most orthodox of theologians. The issue is not that demons don't believe right things about God. The issue is that they're content to only know right things about God and they're not content to bow their knee in submission. They're not content to live and to respond in light of the truth that they know. Their belief is of no saving faith. And what's the effect of their belief? The effect of their belief is that they shudder. They shudder in believing right things about God because it doesn't move them into relationship with God. It only further piles up the judgment of God against them. In our day, it is all too easy and all too common to think that following Jesus is about mere mental assenting to propositions and statements and truths about him. And James is going to say, yes, there is a profession. There is a foundational necessity to believe right things about God. But if you never get in the wheelbarrow, you don't trust. And you don't believe. And so again, what's the conclusion of this little section? Verse 20. Consider the staggering judgment that James pronounces. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In the form of a question, highlighting the objector's folly, James says, do you not see that faith without works is useless? Do you know what that kind of faith has merited the demons? It's merited them hell. It's merited them hell. 
and a faith that is built merely on a profession that is void of a changed life will merit you and I hell. Mental assent to truth does not save. Demons make for decent theologians, but they are not saved. Right answers do not save. Only heart-level trust in that information that you have in Christ, only that saves. It's faith. It's not merely faith. It's not the presence of faith. It's the presence of faith in the correct object of faith. It's in Christ alone. Saving faith is not just, I believe certain truths. It's not, well, I believe I'm saved because I believe I'm saved. Well, why do you believe you're saved? Well, I just believe it. I just believe that I'm saved. No, it's not just an acknowledgement that God exists. It's not just an acknowledgement that Jesus died on a cross. It's a relational, personal commitment to Christ. It's when we come to him as lost and helpless so that we might be found. And it demonstrates itself in a changed life. I I don't know how else to say it other than to say Jesus did not come to live a righteous life and to die a substitutionary death and to raise bodily from the dead. He didn't come so that you and I would sign a card and then walk away 30 years later and our lives still be unchanged. That is not why he came. The Christian faith cannot merely be summed up from a decision you made at some point ago that has had little to no impact since then. Praise be to God for decisions that are made at a point in time. But praise be to God to the evidence of that faith that lasts over time. Christianity is about becoming a new creation in Christ, brought into a living and real relationship with the creator of the universe. And when that happens, we gain a new identity, we gain a new hope, we gain a new future, we gain new promises. And so is your faith transforming your life right now? Are others seeing something different in you? That's what James is getting at. Why does this matter? It matters because genuine faith works. It has works. And that leads us then to point number three. Point number three. We've seen the call to beware of a hollow profession, to beware of doctrinal deception. Point number three, to learn from biblical examples. Learn from biblical examples. We see this in verses 21 through 25. And what James does in verses 21 through 25 is he draws our attention to two examples from the Old Testament that would help us see what a faith that works looks like. The first example is that of Abraham. And he doesn't just draw attention to Abraham generally. He draws attention to Abraham specifically. Specifically about the incident that happens in Genesis 21 and 22. When the Lord asked Abraham to go up and to make a sacrifice and to not take an animal for that sacrifice, but to be prepared to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Faith is the cause of the works that he mentions. 
You see in verse 21, there's the specific example to what happened in Genesis 21 and 22. And then there's a quoting in, in verse 23 of something that happened earlier in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed merely the promise of God, that God was going to do a host of things in and through him, even though at the time he didn't even have a child. How in the world was this going to come about? Abraham put his faith in God and God reckoned to him as righteousness. The life of Abraham illustrates and demonstrates that one is not justified by the works of the law. He wasn't a believer when God called him out, but he responded in faith to the call and to the promise of God. And so why is it then that that Abraham, who had waited so long for a son, why in the world would he be willing to sacrifice? If he believed, Genesis 15, 6, that God was going to do all of this, why in the world then would he sacrifice the son through whom the promise of all of that was going to come? Why? Because he believed God. Why does he act in Genesis 21, 22, the way that he does? Because of Genesis 15, 6. Because he believed. And it was his belief that reckoned him as righteous. Think about it. If God said that you would never be physically harmed in this life, and then God told you to get in your car and to head towards the cliff of the Grand Canyon and to not stop, would you do it? I mean, if you really believed what he said to be true, you would be thinking at some point as you're racing your car to, towards the edge of the canyon, I'm curious how God is going to keep me from being physically harmed. And Abraham is thinking the same thing. I know that God promised this. And I don't know how in the world this accomplishes that. But I trust the God who has asked me to do it. Why was Abraham credited righteousness? Not because of his works, but because of his faith. And do you know what that faith showed itself? It showed itself through its works. Well, you read about this in Hebrews 11. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And he did receive him back. So Abraham is thinking God promised to provide an offspring through this child. And I believe his promise. So I'm willing even to kill my son if God says so, because I'm so certain that God will keep his promise that he'll raise him from the dead if he has to in order to fulfill his promise. My friends, that is faith. That is the picture of faith. This didn't earn him righteousness. No, that came on the basis of faith. And this is why Paul draws attention to Abraham. And this is why James draws attention to something that took place 30 years earlier or 30 years later to illustrate that genuine faith works itself out into genuine obedience. The genuineness of faith in Genesis 15 is expressed in Genesis 22. Faith always gives evidence of its presence through obedience and good works. 
And verse 24 is just, it's, that's the sticking point. It's the reason that Martin Luther called this an epistle of straw. In order to accurately understand verse 24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, you must understand the context. Faith alone in this context is in view of the faith one has or the faith that one who claims to have but doesn't have works. That faith is dead. Augustine would say, Paul says a man is justified through faith without works of the law, but not without those works of which James speaks of. This so-called faith alone is a mere claim. It's a mere profession, and it doesn't result in a transformed life. And a mere profession without a transformed life does not make one adequate before a holy God. I just wonder this morning to my non-Christian friends, maybe even to my friends who would claim to be Christians and that are deceived, do you believe this? I mean, is your life evidence day in and day out of the fact that you are getting in the wheelbarrow no matter what it costs you? And again, I'm not asking, hey, do you have a perfect record in that? I'm asking, is the trajectory of your life I have a surrendered will to that of God, my Father. The faith that I profess shows itself in how I live. Do you believe that? You and I don't get to pick and choose what we want to believe about God and what we want to believe and pay attention to in the Bible. No, the Bible tells us a story over and over of a God who created And he created and he created that all of his creation would be accountable to him. And he's good in his creation and he's holy and he's right in his creation. And yet humanity sins and rebels against his goodness in creation. Wanting more than what he had given us. Wanting ourselves to be God. And the Bible makes clear that the penalty for that type of treason against the holy God is separation from him. It's experiencing his wrath for that rebellion, for that sin. And we're at the end of the story. Every one of us ever to be born of an earthly mother, earthly father, beginning even with Adam and Eve, who sinned against their creator. We would be hosed in our sin. We would all be the rightful recipients of God's holy anger. And yet in mercy and in love, God didn't leave us there. He had set his affections upon a people before the foundations of the world. And so he then sought after his people. And he did whatever it took in order to bring them back, to redeem them. The only thing more beautiful than creation is redemption for those who had so marred the goodness of our God. And he goes to even further lengths by sending Jesus the Christ to come and to live the life that we should have lived, a life of righteousness and to die a death that's deserving of death, one that absorbs the wrath of God. And he's buried and on the third day he rises triumphantly from the grave. 
And the invitation that stands for everyone who hears that message is to stop trying to do your own works to earn favor with God and to get in the wheelbarrow of faith. Entrust your life there. Lean in there, live there. Trust in his completed work, not your own. And that would be really easy to say, yep, I, that's what I want. I agree with that. I believe that. And yet James would say, ah, be careful of a mere profession that isn't adorned with a life of good works. James is not saying do good works to obtain acceptance with God. He's saying the good works that we do are evidence of acceptance with God. My non-Christian friends, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you can have your most fundamental problem addressed. I would plead with you to turn from your sin and trust in the work of Jesus. It will only be by faith that you will ever be counted and credited as righteous. And praise be to God, the work of Jesus can be ours. It cost us everything to follow him. And yet what we gain is far greater than anything we would give up. But that's just the example of Abraham. The next example was clearly shocking for the original readers. The other example that James gives is a faith that works is not only Abraham, but also Rahab, a Canaanite, a f- formerly a prostitute. One commentator said, alongside the famous and celebrated ancestor of the Jewish people, the friend of God, he places this woman of low character. Why? Showing that anyone is capable of responding to the faith that they have been given, whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute. God's grace is sufficient for all, all who would trust and all who would walk in repentance. The story of Rahab is in Joshua 2. Rahab risks her life by harboring the spies and then helping them get away. The previous generation of Israelites had already been too afraid to go into the land. And yet Rahab was thinking, I know God is going to give this land to his people. It doesn't matter if these spies or I get killed, anything. I believe God is going to do this. I know God is going to do this. How then do we know that Rahab had genuine faith? It was revealed when she chose to hide the spies and send them out. A faith that leads to these kinds of works is real, genuine, saving faith. Calvin said, James put together two people who couldn't be further apart in terms of their character to show that no one can be counted righteous without accompanying works. And that leads us then to the last conclusion. It's the same one that we've had in the previous two points. Consider, I would even say heed, the staggering judgment of verse 26. Faith that doesn't lead to real life change is a dead faith. Again, he's not urging us to tack on works, 
but to step back and to consider what is happening if change is not brought about in our lives. And so this morning, I wonder, are you crystal clear on where you stand with God and how to be made right with him? Most people in our day believe that as long as you're a good person, you can be made right with God. But the Bible says that we are saved only through a living trust in the person and the work of Jesus. We can't undo our guilt before a living God. We can't cure our own disease. We can't soften our hardened hearts. We can't save ourselves. We are deserving of judgment. And scripture tells us that a day of judgment is coming and that every mouth will be silenced on that day. No one will raise their fist at him. All will say that he was right. And what wondrous news that Christianity holds out is that Jesus has done all that we need in order to stand on that day with confidence. It's not on your work. It's on his. He's saving souls from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation, from every neighborhood across Tampa Bay, from patriarch to prostitute. He saves all who calls upon his name. And if you're in that number, James says, it will be clear to all. Why? Because your faith will give evidence to your genuine profession. In his preface to the book of Romans, Martin Luther, although he took exception to this letter, believes exactly what James is saying in his letter. Listen to the preface to the book of Romans. Oh, it is a living, busy, mighty thing, this faith. It's impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is even asked, it has already done them, and it's constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. He talks and talks with many words about faith and good works, and yet he knows them not. Brothers and sisters, friends watching, the application from this morning is to look at your profession, to look at your life. Not talking about perfection. If you could do that, you didn't need Jesus. But just saying, is there a consistent change of lifestyle? Are there consistent good works that are flowing from that profession? And if there are not, don't merely falsely find security in a point in time some time way long ago beg God to show you am I right before you have I responded to your news and for those of us who have and who would see gaps along the way may our prayer be Lord may the constant may the 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 daily moment by moment fruit of my profession of my faith in you be that I am doing good Not because I have to earn anything. But in response to your goodness to me. Let's pray. Our holy God. We ask that you would take the word that has gone forth. And apply it to our hearts. And during this moment of silence by your Holy Spirit. Would you. Remind us of how we ought to walk in repentance. God, we want to be a people whose lives match 
professions. Forgive us when we're hypocrites. Forgive us when we're more concerned about how we look and our performance than we are about who we are. And so, Lord, in this moment of silence, by your Spirit, show us what walking in faith looks like we pray.